Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Change in the Climate podcast. Of course, as you know, this show is brought to you by Climate Change Realty, the only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its commissions to nonprofits dedicated to fighting climate change. If you are looking to create climate action on your next real estate transaction, all you have to do is visit ccrealty.org, and we will find you an agent in your area who's willing to offer 50% of their commissions to help save the planet. Now let's dive into the podcast. So Barna, Dadalina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate that. You're very, very welcome. And you know, we always like to get this podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. And Dedalina is on the left on my screen. So we're going to start with her. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for inviting us to talk to you and to your audience. Um, so I'm an immigrant from Bulgaria, I came to the US in 2000. Uh, my background is in physics, uh, master's in meteorology and PhD in oceanography. Uh, through my academic career, I've been working both in US and in Europe. Uh, I built extensive expertise in climate modeling, climate data analysis, high performance computing. Uh, my highlights of my career are my postdoc at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, where I participated in a first-of-a-kind ultra-high resolution fully coupled global climate simulation. Uh, working at the program of climate model diagnostics uh, and engine comparison at ONL, I was developing metrics and methods for climate model evaluation, contributing to uh, IPCC climate change reports. Most recently, I worked at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I studied the predictability of the terrestrial rainfall uh, using ocean predictors. I met my partners, Barna Bachataraya, while working at LNL. And we found ourselves striving how to transfer this high quality scientific knowledge about climate to the communities who are most impacted by climate change. And that's how our company, Coinformatics, was born. Uh, I, I left my full-time academic job a year ago, and I put my efforts in our company for a year now, and it's very exciting. We are building a product for highly localized, near-to-long-term climate predictions. Um, and I'll give the word to Subarna to say a little bit about herself. Subarna, take it away. Thank you so much. Thanks for that kind introduction and mention, Detlina, and thanks, Ethan, for inviting us to this talk. So my name is Subarna Bhattacharya. I'm originally from India and now settled in the San Francisco Bay Area. A little bit about my background. Um, with a master's in biophysics, an MC in civil engineering, and a PhD in engineering mechanics studying Indian rainfall data over 100 years, using various advanced mathematical, statistical, signal processing, and dynamical techniques, I learned about climate physics in a sort of a reverse engineering sense, if you will, by analyzing the observed climate data and building models based on them. That already got my interest driving into the climate science um, but then I joined a job at the insurance industry and my brief stint there as a catastrophic risk modeler, modeling hurricanes and other natural and man-made disasters, fueled my desires for learning global uh, full-scale climate modeling. And that's what you know got me into uh, the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, working as a postdoc at the LLNL's 
Nobel winning IPCC working group, one, modeling pathways and impacts of abrupt climate change, particularly from large methane emissions, gave me deep exposure into full-scale climate modeling and impact assessments. So together with my experience in risk modeling and my skill sets in you know, widely interdisciplinary applied mathematical modeling, analytics, and prediction skills, signal processing, and time series analysis expertise, it became seemingly obvious for me to be able to connect the dots. And that's mm-hmm. where I met Tedlina at LLNL, and we shared a lot of common concerns of how the vast knowledge of climate data science can be applied to help farmers, businesses, stakeholders, proactively to make informed decisions, particularly the question of why we could not see the drought in California coming well ahead of time is what got us thinking and started. And there you go, Climformatics was born. Very, very, very cool. Thank you both for the the excellent introductions. I really appreciate it. It helps me get the context. And I I like that, that first question right away. How could we not see a drought coming? I guess my next question to either of you, to address to either of you is, how can we really see anything coming? How do these models or these predictions that scientists make, how do they come together to begin with? And do you have any examples of something a scientist has been able to predict with great accuracy? Because sometimes I look at the weather app on my phone and they say it's going to rain and, and it doesn't. So I'm wondering what examples we have where scientists are really good at predicting something. So um, let me start by answering the question and let Detlina, you know, get you into more detail uh, about how climate models work. But just answering your question, I would just say that the current state-of-the-art climate models are getting better and better, and they're pretty robust in modeling the climate states and the interactions between uh the different parts that make the climate that talk to each other, like the atmosphere, ocean, land, ecological systems, glaciers, land ice, sea ice, and so on. We at Climformatics actually build on that technology further using our own AI and have been able to accurately predict temperature and precipitation in California for about 300 zip codes, about 30% of California zip codes over the period 2011 to 2016. And recently, we have also done solar power forecast validations over 2021 and 2022. And we have some live forecasts out there right now as we speak for about 10 locations in the US. So climate change is slowly compared to weather and the dynamics is also reasonably well understood. And Therefore, if we understand the system, the chances of our being able to predict what is coming in the uh, you know, short term, like more than the weather, uh, beyond 10 days, beyond a month, to a year ahead, to a few years ahead, that can be a pretty robust um, understanding. And that's what we build on. But I would like you to know more about this from Detlina about how climate modeling generally works. Definitely. Over to you, Dedlina. Uh Okay, uh, climate modeling is my favorite topic and please interrupt me if I'm <laughs> taking too much time. <laughs> uh, so I was coming to this interview, I was trying to find more simpler ways of explaining uh, how climate models work, what it takes 
to run those models and to uh, produce all that uh, information which is uh, telling us what is going to happen in the future and how to use it. Uh, so for me, in simple words, the climate modeling is the focal point of human knowledge about the Earth system. It includes physics, chemistry, biology of all Earth components like atmosphere, ocean, land, sea ice, it, and others. And it, the list keeps uh, adding. Uh, and also includes all, all their interactions and feedbacks, uh, which are very important. For example, if we compare a climate model to a weather model you were mm -hmm. mentioning, uh, the weather model only has one component, the atmospheric component, and their forecasts are only uh, probably accurate in the next two weeks. That's the short-term synoptic scale, which the atmosphere is the main driver of. In order to be able to predict longer variability, like a seasonal or a annual variability, you need to have the ocean, for example. That's the one which drives the uh, El Nino, La Nina, uh, together with the atmosphere, of course. Uh, and all that interaction is needed for a model to be able to predict uh, seasonal variability, annual variability, and uh, of course, uh, uh, um, a longer term. Um, and that's what we're doing with the climate model development. And it's uh, in continuous development, we evaluate, validate, improve uh, the climate models uh, with the ultimate goal that one day we're going in the distant future, we're going to generate a digital twin of the planet Earth, which will be reproducing the reality as it is. Uh, currently, the complex equations that this model are solved uh, with the help of uh, big supercomputers. Um, uh, in order to be able to use those, we need to uh, discretize the otherwise continuous environment of the climate system into uh, special grids, model grids. So that discretization itself already introduces an error. That's the model error because um, what is discretization? That's the distance between two grid points. Uh, anything uh, with a scale less than that distance, it's not resolved by the model. So that, this is what we already know. We're counting for the model okay. error. And I'm mentioning this because later I want to say why we have more accuracy. Um, yeah, uh, so this is the problem with the model errors. But current generation climate models, for example, the resolution is one degree, uh, the standard resolution. And that's about 100 kilometers. So everything with scales less than 100 kilometers, like storms, tornadoes, clouds, or ocean eddies, it's not well represented by the climate models. Even though they're developing continuously, they still have uh, uh, some <clears throat> underrepresented under physics. Uh, and there are development of high resolution models. As I mentioned, I worked on, in my postdoc on ultra high resolution, which was uh, 10 kilometer resolution in the ocean and uh, 20 kilometer in the atmosphere. But those are really expensive models to run. And we are far away from the time when we can run those models operationally, like the weather forecast model. So, uh, gotcha. So, yeah. do you want to add this thought to uh, what you just said, Delina? You know, going back to Ethan's question, that um, when he sometimes compares the weather uh, forecast that he sees on his phone, uh, and it doesn't match with um, what is happening outside when he looks out. Do you want to address that question as to 
why um, maybe not all the forecasts are taking into account the whole atmospheric physics. And that is possibly the reason that we, in spite of all our efforts, we do not get to see accurate uh, forecasts of weather. Uh, it, it really depends on how the computation has been done, whether it has been a high resolution model, whether it includes all factors and things like that. Do you want to elaborate on that? Uh, you mean the weather models? Yeah. Why they they might not be correct? Well, um, because well, I was saying that because they're not really having all the interactions right. with the rest of the components, they cannot represent correctly the uh, entire Earth system physics. Um, but it also depends on a very chaotic nature of the climate. So. A very a lot of possibilities are possible and depending on uh, how fast mm -hmm. we uh, assimilate the observations uh, <clears throat> in the models my luck uh, that current trajectory so am I understanding correctly that it's easier to predict broad global climate than it is a specific area like you said for example 100 kilometers or 10 kilometers if you were to look at the city of los angeles it'd be harder to predict the climate for los angeles than it would be for the whole country of the u.s is, is that what you were saying as well yes yes the having a coarser resolution uh, grids uh, are allowing us to speak for larger area uh, climate rather than localized uh, local for the city or local for a farm um, and so far um, the current services national services are addressing globally the uh, problems so they they don't really look into the individuals uh, issues and needs gotcha well that might be a useful thing to obviously try try to get into in the future i'm trying to wrap my head around this as a as a business person who had, doesn't have a scientific minded brain at all I think I try to think about things in terms, for example, of like investing. I can tell you that your house is going to be worth more money for sure in 30 years. But in the next three years, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'm trying to relate that back to like the climate model. We can say for sure we know broadly that the the average global temperature is rising, which is causing ice to melt, which is making changing the patterns of the ocean currents, and that's going to throw things out of whack. But we can't necessarily say exactly what's going to happen in the next one year because there's too many moving parts, kind of thing. Is that does that kind of make sense? That relation? Yes, and actually further to that, um, your question of whether uh, you know your house prices can rise for thirty years, for sure, but. Will your house suffer damages in the next three years, in the next year? Are you going to be hit right. by a storm? Right. Do you need to retrofit for wildfires? So things like that can uh, benefit. Questions like that can benefit from our kind of work, which we are trying to bring to the industry, to the commercial uh, market, where we can use our climate models data we can use them judiciously with our own AI, which is what we have developed, to give far more localized, accurate predictions that can help you prepare for those conditions. And because you'll be prepared, you are expected to reduce your risks and therefore thrive. That could mean, you know... Um, your house survives, your business survives, your bottom line thrives. 
Gotcha. So let, let's talk a bit about more about this. So you both have started a, a company separate from working for like a resource organization. You started this company, Climformactics. And who is like the end user of the data that you are calculating, I guess? So uh, currently, uh, you're asking who our customers would be. And how the, what the business is, how it works, why it exists, all that stuff. So uh, in terms of customers, we are actually first focusing on the agriculture, uh, agricultural sector. In that, we are particularly interested in the ag tech companies who uh, transact a lot with the farmers and the farming communities. And uh, we are setting up our platform so that these ag tech companies uh, can be our clients. They gain the data that we can uh, and the insight from the knowledge using our app. And then they can tailor that app or you know, to reach out to their uh, their customers with uh, you know instructions like, okay, you know, in the next few days or the next few months, you're going to have a heat wave. So you have to prepare for this. So advanced notification they can send to their customers. And uh, we in, in doing so, they will gain their business and their customers will also um, save themselves from this uh, unforeseen climate risks like heat waves, droughts, wildfires, and so on. And so Actec, we are starting with Actec because uh, our goal was, you know, our, our entire company started with the fact that we wanted to help the farming um, to be sustainable. But we soon find out that our uh, customers are also the energy energy industry, particularly we recently went through a whole lot of competitions and uh, award winning with the um, solar prize, uh, which was a DOE effort, Department of Energy. And we now realize that the solar utilities could would be our customers because since the variable nature of electricity, particularly with respect to solar and renewables, it is extremely important to have good predictions and forecasts both day ahead to seasons ahead to a year ahead as to how much power you're likely to get and how that you can uh, plan with respect to the existing demand supply and how you can prepare uh, other power sources, uh, make your grid more resilient. Mm -hmm. So that's the other set of um, companies that we are currently talking to as customers. We are also... Um, at, as part of our coming back to the agriculture, we are also initiated conversations with our wine industry, and that's where a lot of water-intensive work happens. Uh, you know, they are their wine growing is far more de dependent on the climate variables. I'm sure Delina can tell you a whole lot more on that. But broadly, all the big uh, ver industry verticals, whether it is retail, whether it is energy, whether it is sports, outdoor, you know, entertainments, uh, whether it is supply chain, logistics, healthcare, all of them are affected by climate change. So what does it mean if, if you're going to get a one degree rise in temperature within a certain time? And if that is within the short span of seasons to a year, how do you plan for that? How is your business going to get affected? 
Or are you going to get into big storms which are going to cause business interruptions in one place? Can you use that loss that you're going to have in one place because of the interruption? Can you make it up for another place where you wouldn't have those inclement weather? So all those kind of possibilities, whether it is a product launch, whether it is a promotion, whether it is, um, you know, um, taking advantage of the different climate scenarios in different regions, all of that affect the bottom lines of these companies. Sure. So all the big giants are going to be interested, uh, whether it is Amazon, Google, Microsoft, or um, you know the companies uh, of those kinds, or whether it is the retail, insurance, energy, water, uh, tourism, healthcare, and all, all those other industries. Even the government stakeholder would be interested for their planning purposes. And we're very proud to say that we recently won this award from CalSeed, uh, which is uh, which is approved by the California Energy Commission uh, for a concept award for building this grid resilience, um, helping build the grid resilience using fire weather uh, predictions. You know, but California is particularly prone to wildfires, and what oh, yeah. we are seeing is that our ability to be able to uh, predict this weather variables far ahead in time together can actually help us build a fire weather index well ahead of time for the government, the stakeholders, you know, the Cal Fire people to take actions, to take mitigations so that we may not be able to stop the wildfires as such. And maybe we do not even want to get there because they're good for the forest in some way or the other. However, we do want to stop or minimize the loss of lives, the loss of properties, the loss of business in general. And that's that's our motivation. Along with that, we yeah. have recently been members of United Nations uh, Disaster Risk Resilience Chapter for the US. We are alumni of CleanTech uh, Open. And of course, from uh, you know, we still receive mentorship from the Lawrence Livermore. And we are grateful to be an IBM partner. And I am grateful to have you here on the podcast right now. I think it's really awesome. And Thank we you. could use some of your some of your good data out here on wildfires in Colorado. It's getting just as bad as California, I would say. I am Absolutely. wondering. Yeah, I know. So hopefully you guys start spreading out nationwide and we can use some of that delicious machine learning data to uh, get prepared for some fires. I am wondering how this desire to help people get predictive data to be prepared for a change in climate led you to start your own business rather than create some kind of new department in an already established, um, I don't know if it's a government body or a research institution, where, where did the idea, I, I, I can see the, the market benefit, but I'm wondering where your desire to kind of take it on your own come from. So you are absolutely right. We wanted, we first wrote our very first proposal and sent it to the government, uh, you know, federal funding. We got good reviews on our proposal, although uh, it came back with the one serious comment that this is not a usual or a typical one solution fits all kind of a solution because the different farmers have different needs for growing their crops. Like right? somebody needs more water, somebody needs more uh, heat, somebody needs less water, less salt, more salt. So depending on what you grow and where you grow, your needs 
are different. And so it's what we are building will help you cater to your needs, but the solution is as such, not like you take the solution and it is broadly applied across everything. So it's a way of customizing uh, the solution to the customer's need. And that is not really something that is aligned, aligned much with the science in nation's interests in a theoretical way. Okay. And so we tried to start this from the lab, uh, but it didn't work. And so we stepped out because we really were passionate about it and we wanted to um, really make a difference and we believed that we could. Yeah. Well, good on you. I, I believe that you can as well. You've definitely got the skill sets to make, to make it happen. I think that's abundantly clear. I'm, I'm how is um, machine learning involved with the data and the, the models that you're developing and how does that make them kind of more accurate over time? Cause as I understand machine learning is like a, a compounding effect where the longer time it has to collect, the better it gets. So it's just, you know, the theory with humans, the longer we're on the earth, the uh, smarter we get, but it, you could definitely bring that into question. But as far as, as the machine learning with the climate models, how, how is that directly involved? Um, well, you know, we will not be able to tell you a whole lot because that's a secret Oh, of course. <laughs> That's why I had to ask. But, uh, yeah, but but broadly, broadly. Um, mm-hmm. So the reason uh, we are using this is simply because I mean we hear a lot of things about machine learning these days, or that term is used, you know, in a generic manner. But I just want to mention that we are not really using any of the off-the-shelf, you know, machine learning toolboxes as such. We are developing our own based on the basic science, physics, maths, and um, data numerical analytics. And based on that, we have developed our own learning algorithm, which will um, basically learn from the climate models and uh, give us better uh, predictions. And and it will... um, also address some of the subgrid processes, which Detlina was mentioning. Maybe Detlina, you might want to say a little bit more on that. So basically, it addresses some of the deficiencies uh, that the current state-of-the-art climate models have. Yes, I'd like and to so hear more. That's why about we that. are. Yeah, that, that's what we are able to do. Yeah, Detlina, why don't you tell us a bit about some of the issues with the current climate models and how yours is way better. Oh, well, way better. I don't know yet. <laughs> but uh, right. Uh, so I talked earlier about the subgrid scale processes which are underrepresented, which are introducing model errors. Um, and the way we're trying to resolve this uh, with uh, machine learning is by using the climate data, model data as well. We are using a vast uh, observational data available through different sources, either NASA or NOAA or um, NCAR, uh, <clears throat> as well as uh, we also using uh, private uh, observational network data. So by using this big data uh, sets, uh, we, we, we are able to uh, fill in the gaps which are in the, uh, the climate model solutions, uh, at least uh, at some uh, uh, level. Um, 
The other issues we're addressing besides the climate model errors uh, due to missing physics or resolution, uh, we also address the uh, uncertainty which comes from the variety and the spread of the future climate projections. Like, for example, uh, the latest IPCC report featured uh, several different scenarios of possible future projections, uh, climate projections, like uh, I think it were, there were five at least. Yeah, I thought so. And all of those have variety of greenhouse forcing, aerosol forcing as well, socioeconomic uh, development or land use. Um, and that produces quite a bit of variety of solutions which might be possible to happen. So what we are trying to do, or we are trying to, using current observations, to adjust these future projections to the most closely observed pathway uh, in the now, because uh, the projections of the models are uh, at least 50 years ahead, but they are produced um, with some assumptions which may not be exactly what happens and there are other factors like uh, uh, different forums happening uh, now more and more often like the uh, paris agreement like the united nations climate conference uh, of the parties uh, which are uh, taking new decisions new priorities uh, and it's not really uh, clear what nation what government will take what measures so along the pathway we just need to adjust the uh, the current observed um, uh, climate state with the one which is projected. Um, so that's the two main things which I believe our solution can improve in uh, what's offered by the climate models. Okay. Uncertainty and model accuracy. Okay, so assuming we get to a point, maybe whatever, five years from now, or even now, um, where people keep continue emitting and the models keep giving us more and more negative data, how do you recommend people respond to the results that the model is producing, saying that in 15 years we're not going to have any ice in the Arctic Ocean, for example? How do you recommend people respond to that kind of stuff? I guess, or specifically business, perhaps business owners when, when dealing with negative climate models. So, you know, I think this is such an important question. Um I feel that when we have these results, uh, which are seemingly negative, we need to delve deeper into it and understand the physicality of the uncertainty uh, that these models are talking about. Usually, uh, when we are reading an executive summary of the, you know, of this huge research that goes into the IPCC report, we are only reading a little bit of it. And we are not really pointing our, our focus is not really to understand the assumptions that have led to uh, that report, uh, that analysis. Oftentimes, these assumptions are extremely, um, let's say, aggressive. Like, for example, we would have, say, four times CO2 emission in the next so-and-so years. Now, the current reality may be different than that. And that's why there is a disconnect between what is happening right now, where we are right now, versus what we think would be in 10 years, 15 years, or 50 years. And that is exactly the reason why we are having these sort of uncertainties. 
So one way to un- understand that is, are we understanding the assumptions behind these assertions? Or even if we do, can we understand the whole gamut of uh, results? Can we look at the uncertainty as an ensemble instead of one point in space and time? And so that gives us a much more probabilistic framework, which the businesses can understand better. And that can give us a more realistic estimate of what is to be expected. But even with all of that, the current IPCC framework of reporting is not really geared towards businesses make uh, that conclusion easily. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, part of our work is also uh, to address those issues, to make, uh, make sense of what the climate models are saying and what they're not saying and how to use that information to get credible information for proactive risk mitigation. And so that's what people like us and businesses like us can help do. Because we understand what the models are saying. We understand the math that goes behind it. And we know how to interpret that. And therefore, that's why we are able to work with those with our own algorithms to get a much more realistic, much more um, closer to observation predictions. And that's what the businesses would need to make informed decisions. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to become more and more exceedingly important for any large corporation to be aware it of is climate going modeling. To be. Yeah, I mean, with with a consistent, I don't know, the growth of, I don't want to say the growth of uncertainty, but extremes continuing to accelerate being aware of this kind of stuff would seem more important than ever. Absolutely. You see, with more number of wildfires, more number of storms, freezes, uh, you know, droughts, every every part of the world we are getting exposed to this in a you know larger number of events right and the insurance industry which really is one of the safety nets you know covering all kinds of um, adverse climate conditions are getting to a point where they have to pay out more because the frequency of these extreme events have increased right And so unless we come up with a mechanism where um, either the businesses take care of the climate information and act accordingly, adapt accordingly, mitigate their risks, or the insurance industry comes up with a way of underwriting and policies that will trigger the resilience by default. Like, you know, uh, say, reducing premiums for all those businesses which are doing proactive, sustainable risk resilience measures so that they get an incentive, they have a lower premium, and they are trying to take care of themselves so that they don't get into large large ticket losses. Mm-hmm. And so it is going to be a central uh, you know, factor in how, to ra- how the businesses are going to survive and make money and be profitable and thrive without adapting for climate change that is going to be difficult it's it's already we are seeing those results in the wildfires in in the floods 
and other disasters. How common is it for large businesses to be paying attention to this stuff at the moment? And how does that trend compare to like in, in the past? So they are actually a lot of these big businesses are trying to use renewable energy, trying to, um, you know, um, have more greener solutions, are very mindful of their carbon footprint. And so with small steps, now all of these big businesses have separate programs on climate sustainability. They had, I, I learned that at least recently I was visiting India, I learned that the, all the corporations there have to devote 2% of their earnings for corporate sustainability responsibilities. Wow. So policies like that are by default, you know, ensuring that we have to take care of the climate. We have to take care of our environment. We have to pollute less. We have to recycle more. All of those are becoming mainstream now. So companies are definitely working towards that. The government in India is mandating that all companies have to invest 2% of their revenue in sustainability? Yeah. That's very interesting. Hmm. What are um what are the largest climate risks that American-based companies you think will be facing in the next fifty years? We've talked about fires. Um, what else kind of comes to mind that businesses need to be aware? Last five years here in California, in Arizona, in Texas, uh, uh, sorry, in Colorado. Um, I, I'm sure there are other areas, even in the up north, Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. we have seen a lot of back-to-back -back large category storms, whether it is Hurricane Maria or, um, you know, Harvey, you, you name it, there, Katrina, there have been so many um, large storms that have devastated the cities, brought down businesses. Every year, almost, we are having big cold freezes and... Uh, really cold, severe climate in the east and the northeast. And so right now we are having all possible kind of um, climate disasters hitting this country, mm -hmm. whether it's in the north, whether it's in the south. The nature of it is different. Somewhere you're having a big wind event, somewhere it's a more uh, you know atmospheric river event, somewhere it is drought event, somewhere it is fire event. But it is happening. Right. Definitely. So based, you both have a robust understanding of how, I don't even want to say earth, how the whole universe works. If you both studied physics and then got deep into your individual specifications, what steps do you recommend businesses and individuals take to mitigate some of the most devastating effects of a changing climate? I'd love to hear each of your perspective on this one. I, I don't know. I've been doing much more talking. I let Detlina first she, she start with this. this one first. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I think the first step is really to take responsibility for our carbon print and, uh, and do everything possible what's in our um, capabilities uh, to reduce our uh, fossil fuels uh, usage, use all the new technologies which are coming up, uh, clean energy technology like solar or wind technology, power technologies. Um, recycle more useless uh, trees for paper. <laughs> That's the first thing coming up uh, to mind. Um, and of course, if you want to prevent, uh, be just aware of 
this information, make yourself aware of uh, fire weather alerts. Like just now in the news, there's um, a new fire, coastal fire, which in the minutes, like 15 to 30 minutes, uh, burn um, one block of houses and people barely escaped. They, they didn't had alert at all. It was devastating. It's a devastating uh, weather to have. And uh, we have to be aware and we have to be mindful and careful um, how we um, want to protect our property and businesses. <clears throat> I think this information has to be uh, listen to not just like the weather, but uh, like as well like the weather have to be checked uh, well ahead of time to to know what is to come and uh, prepare as much as possible. Um, besides, yeah. Uh, yeah, there probably are different uh, measures you can take to prepare for fire weather. Um, which you can uh, do on a regular basis when the temperatures are getting higher and the winds are getting higher. Um, so yeah. I want to add to that um, what just did what what did Lina just say that besides you know doing all that we can, like recycling, uh, re emitting less, and doing the basic. Um, our each individual and company's part to help the climate. The other thing that is also emerging these days is what is known as a geoengineering. Mm -hmm. And with that, a lot of these technologies are coming up, um, which are trying to, you know, restore some of the um, climate's extreme condition to a more normal uh, condition. And while a lot of uh, natural efforts in like, you know, planting trees, uh, building the wetlands back to take the brunt of storms and things like that are happening. But uh, beyond that, there's a lot of effort right now with emerging technologies. And I would like um, like to say a little bit about a different kind of a consulting work that we have been involved with and we are very proud to be yeah, part yeah. of that. Uh, Detlina has been leading that work. Um, so this is for uh, an effort to save the Arctic ice from melting. Mm -hmm. And there's a nonprofit company which came up with the technology with, you know, a decade of testing um, sand-like, white sand-like reflexive hollow glass spheres. Um, the Arctic Ice Project. They used to be Arctic Ice Project, yes. They were on the podcast. Tom Light, this is the CEO oh, really? of the company. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so you know that. Earlier, they used to be called Ice 911, and that's where we were both Cleantech Open uh, alumni, and we were both, at one point of time, invited to uh, speak, Dr. Leslie Field, the founder of Ice 911, which later became the Arctic Ice Project. Um, she and me, we were invited to talk to a group of graduating students from the State Department, you know, the Fulbright scholars and other, other scholars, as to what the Silicon Valley was thinking on climate change, what are the futuristic technologies that could help. 
And we were fascinated by the talks we had and the interactions we had. And we thought, okay, we are, you know, having detailed climate modeling background and expertise. At that time, when we started the company, we did not even think that who in the world would need such highly catered skills. Um, but turns out that they needed climate modeling because they needed to show what the impact of deploying their um, technology on the Arctic ice would be. And there's no other way to study that other than you know full-scale climate modeling. And then we took up the challenge because we wanted to first see if at all anything matters. And that led to a beautiful set of work a lot of research on, you know, good um, supercomputers. And that basically gave us the idea that, yes, you can change the Earth's energy balance by uh, implementing methods like that. And so one of our pet um, ideas is that by building the product that we are building, we are not, not only able to predict what the current climate conditions would be and going into the future, but we are also set up to be able to predict that if you have geoengineering technologies and if you deploy them, even before you deploy them, you need to have a full-scale modeling and impact assessment at each and every location to understand what would be the impact of deploying those solutions from a climate perspective and then the industries would find that industries, governments, and stakeholders would find additional benefit of studying that from the finance and econometric perspective. Mm -hmm. And so our product really would be, is a segue to getting there. And that's what we are also very proud of and excited with. And our, our, and our Arctic ice project related research has been presented worldwide. Um, whether Let, it is yeah, the American... Let's hear about that. What do you think? I was talking to Tom about it. Do you think they're in like, it seems like they're kind of in like the testing stages. Do you have models yeah. saying, because there is the the risk of trying to do this deployment and then the, all the ice just melts and then it's all gone. So I'm wondering... So what, what, yeah, that's exactly the reason. We have done uh, at least four to five years of research on that oh. and with detailed full-scale climate modeling. Um, Detlina can say much more about the much more details about the modeling. She has been leading this work. Um, so yeah, I think so far to the best of our knowledge, it is one of the most benign, uh, technologies from a modeling perspective that we know of. In terms of geoengineering, you mean? In terms of geoengineering, because it is like sand and they have undergone and they're still undergoing a lot of environmental tests about it. Um, but on the math side of it, it does seem very impressive. It does seem to have, um, power of changing, uh, the energy balance in a very smart way without having to carpet the Arctic ice with that. Even you do small like regions. Points. You could put yes. focal points and it will have the same yes, effect. That's, that's what we have seen that, right? Positive. Correct. Yeah. So it, this has work has been presented at the United Nations, uh, you know, General Assembly 
at the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress, at Davos several times for the World Economic Forum. And of course, many years we have been talking at the American Geophysical Union, trying mm-hmm. to get this work off the ground. But it, it has uh, shown promise. Deslina, do you want to please add um, yeah. your oh, insights? Yes, of on- course. Ha- this has it been fun? This is my... Absolutely. It's my passion. Yeah. Arctic restoration, climate restoration is my passion. And I'm uh, really striving to get results uh, which are positive. Um, And the the thing is, some people people were scared when they hear geoengineering, but normally geoengineering technologies are applied over the entire globe. And they do hinder a lot of uh, undesirable effects. So if we, for example, apply the technology over the entire Arctic to cover the entire Arctic ice, that will be a geoengineering. But the idea is that we want to find those strategic regions, for example, like a Fram Strait or Bifurgia core. I'm talking about geographical names here, but those are strategic regions in Arctic, which if we use this technology, we might have a positive impact. And uh, in my uh, presentation on the last uh, uh, AGU, the American Geophysical Union uh, conference, I showed results that this uh, solution may not stop the Arctic melting, but it will slow it down uh, and it will allow us to, to do the actual measures we need yeah. to build our greenhouse uh, reduction uh, technologies and it will give us more time. Uh, so I believe that this type of small scale um, benign type of uh, solution might help us and we might need them to slow down the process of uh, either Arctic melt or any other urgent crisis to address. <laughs> And we might need to use that kind of uh, localized solutions uh, in addition to the main measures we're taking. And the idea behind that is to stop the Arctic ice from melting because that's going to throw off the entire climate system because it will mess up the ocean currents, right? Which is like the core of the the climate system. We're going to shift into a new state, a new climate state. And we have to adjust. Besides that, we're already adjusting our technologies to clean up the air and the earth. We also, as human beings, have to adjust to a new climate. (laughs) Maybe it's going to happen a a lot of migration and a lot of uh, things we may don't even imagine. Right. So what has been your experience transitioning from full-time research professionals to actual business owners? I know Dedalina had said she just went full-time a year ago. I take it, Sabarna, this was like your your project that you kind of started or you started it together and she went full-time and now you're both full-time. So I'd love to hear about that before we kind of sign off. All right. Well, my, uh, I was working full-time uh, till recently uh, in academy in different institutions. Uh, and then last year, I joined Subarna, uh, who's holding the company uh, for a long time. Uh, and it's very exciting experience. I, I'm really passionate about it. And I feel purpose-driven more than ever wow. uh, in my career. So I wish that to younger generations as well to find their purpose and follow it um, step by step till they get to uh, milestones and achievements they're happy with. And yeah, I love <laughs> I that. let's burn. 
Yeah. Well, I think um, I am excited because um, now I have Terlina working with me full time and we have endless conversations and things to do for each and every part of the business. And the interesting uh, experience for me is when I started this, um, when, I mean, we both started this long back, but then Detlina was, um, you know, working part-time in it and I was working full-time. Um, we had no idea of how to run a business. <laughs> and we were only started with one slide, one DOE, you know, need, benefit, analysis, competition, etc. those kind of slide. And we were amazed and inspired because the moment we left lab, we were mentored. I mean, the lab was still our mentor. Um, and we went through several of these incubation programs uh, recommended by the lab. And we went through iGate, we went through CleanTech Open. And after that experience, that CleanTech Open program, it actually exposed us to all the different parts that you need to have in a business to start. And that like that experience was like in a, you know, giving us, me particularly, like an MBA in a box. <laughs> you have a project, you have an idea, you want to take it to the market, you want to get people, you want to get people listen to you, and how do you do that? And what what are the different aspects, the legal aspect, the commercial aspect, the market aspect, the customer aspect? the team aspect, you know, the computational infrastructure, every aspect has to be addressed. And so we found that as a very rewarding experience. We connected with some of our, you know, top mentors um, from that uh, competition. We ended up winning one, um, winning the Western uh, U.S. Ag Water Technology category uh, top award for that. But it's only after that we started actually um, more on a more serious note, you know, trying to build a um, mock-up of our product or how it would interact, who we would sell it to. And so that customer discovery process, the process of uh, pitching and getting feedback, we got a lot of very serious comments but we learned from each one of them. So our patients, particularly, I feel that the exercise that we have gone through has been rewarding because we were always looking to learn from each and every opportunities and not get derailed by all the negative or critical comments or you know that comment of you are not there yet as a business we started absorbing understanding what those meant mm -hmm. and that has actually really bolstered our way we have bootstrapped and we have supported ourselves with consulting now we have won some prizes now we have some customers who are willing to work with us and so that that journey has been a long one and a very rewarding one and i'm just very glad that we didn't give up you know yeah. in spite of all odds we didn't give up we kept it going and i feel our deep expertise in analytics you know during our phds and masters and research enabled us to see the dots to see what lies ahead and what needs to be done 
and not get deterred by anything or anyone. Building your own model for the future. Absolutely. And I feel that one important thing we must all have in order to succeed as a company, and particularly for people who are scientists like us, is to be able to uh, follow your passion, follow the, uh, the goal and the vision that you've created and follow it vigorously, you know, without it, not, not a single thing has been achieved. It can start as a crazy idea, but we need to be able to execute it. And our years of patience with analytics, with understanding the physics, with understanding the, you know, how things work, are helping with that. And that's also a call to all women entrepreneurs, awesome. um, you know, the younger generation, that you should pick up a problem and there are enough troubles, enough problems that we need to solve to make the world a better place. And the goal, although you have started a company, is not only to be able to establish a business, but to do a meaningful business that will improve and leave the world a better place, improve people's lives, improve the businesses, improve our sustainability uh, aspects. Yes. And I think you're definitely doing that. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the research each of you have done over the years to help us understand more about our very confusing yet beautiful world. Dedalina, do you have any final pieces of advice for young people who are just kind of getting started in the in life? Um, well, I want to share because I'm very pleased with our interns, uh, undergraduate students from UC Berkeley. Uh, we mentor them during their spring semester uh, with our uh, actually saw our forecasting uh, project. They uh, helped us with that. And they won the award of the discovery program for data science insights. We are very proud with them and we wish them good luck. Uh, and we wish them to be um, very uh, motivated and um, purpose driven in their future uh, and uh, follow their dreams, Indeed. definitely. Always follow your dreams. Uh, yes. Savarna, Dadalina, really thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share what you're doing. I look forward to seeing how far your um, machine learning can take the models. It sounds like a, we hopefully, you know, the longer we go, the more data to collect, the more we'll know. So thank you for the work that you're both doing. I appreciate the time. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. Appreciate that. You're welcome. All right, everybody. See you on the next one. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.